everyone. Welcome to episode 296 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by two amazingly talented wildlife and nature photographers, Pam Dorner and Jennifer Lee Warner, to discuss ethics in wildlife photography. This topic is one that is near and dear to me, and I hope you enjoy both Pam and Jennifer's thoughtful responses to my questions relating to the challenges we face regarding wildlife photography and ethics. Before we dive in, I want to mention that this week's episode is brought to you by Nature Photographers Network. NPN is an amazing community of like-minded photographers who are super generous with their time, and everyone seems to just want to help each other out and make each other better photographers. There is an incredibly helpful critique forum for multiple genres of nature photography, including wildlife photography, There are lots of full-time professionals offering critique, and it's just a wonderful place to engage with other photographers. For just $49 per year, you can join the community on NPN and gain access to some other amazing benefits, including some awesome articles, webinars, discounted tutorials, discounted software, discounts on books, lots and lots more. It's such a great place, and I'd love to see you there. Just head over to npn.link forward slash f-stop to join. Use the code f-stop10 for a 10% discount. That's npn.link forward slash f-stop. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Pam Dorner and Jennifer Lee Warner. All right, Pam Dorner and Jennifer Lee Warner, it is great to have you both on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Every once in a while, my friend Wayne Suggs just sends me a random email. And he's like, here's somebody you got to get on the podcast. So he recommended you, Pam. And then when I reached out to Pam, she's like, oh, and we should probably get Jennifer on too because she's super awesome and we would make a great combo for this topic. So I was like, yeah, let's do that. And here we are, finally. <laughs> I'm so glad Jennifer could join us. Yeah, cool. Well, for people that are not familiar with uh, each of you, it would be awesome to hear um, you introduce yourselves, a little bit about yourself, and we'll go ahead and start with you, Pam. Okay. My name's Pam Dorner. I'm a fur from New Mexico with a BBA in marketing from Texas Tech. Um, I started doing photography when my oldest son graduated from the private school I was working at um, in fundraising, and I wanted something a little less stressful. And about that time, my sister-in-law gave me her um, old Canon 6D camera, and I just kind of took it and ran with it. And so, I've I've loved it. I um, since then I've won awards, local, national, and even an international wildlife award. Um, I'm in two galleries in New Mexico. I've been published, and I just I love photography. Awesome. And what about for you, Jennifer? Yeah, so I'm Jennifer Lee Warner in Central Texas, but I consider myself a bit of a nomad. I move around quite a bit, um, but I started off in Washington State. And um, yeah, I'm full-time professional. Uh, I consider myself a conservation photographer, so 
um, focusing on wildlife and nature, but with the um, the passion of using my images to better um, the species or the places that I'm I'm trying to photograph. Um, I'm the ethics committee chair for the North American Nature Photographers Association, or also known as NAMPA, um, and an ambassador for the organization called Nature First, um, as well as a Nikon professional. And I've been photographing for about 16, going on 17 years, so most of my life. Yeah, I mean, been published, won awards as well, and um, yeah, just really passionate about telling wildlife stories. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for your service for Nature First. I'm sure you know this, but I helped create Nature First back in 2018, so it's cool to see it's still living. <laughs> it is, and thriving. So, yeah, it's awesome. And um, I was super curious, envious of your uh, ability to pursue that passion of conservation photography. And I was curious, kind of like, how did you arrive at that particular subgenre of nature photography? Because I feel like that's a very specific type of photography that isn't necessarily easy to, to crack into. It is, yeah. So my love of wildlife photography, actually, child who just... I loved big cats, particularly um, mostly African big cats. And I was trying to find a way to make a career with working with um, wildlife. And I was introduced to National Geographic and um, I realized that photography was a powerful tool to tell those stories. So I think that the idea of being a conservation photographer was ingrained from the beginning. But it wasn't until I um, started taking some workshops and working with some other photographers that I realized that I didn't just want to take pretty pictures. I wanted to do something with them. And I, it took me many years to figure out what that looked like. And I've been really fortunate to be able to partner up with some organizations like the Cheetah Conservation Fund and the San Diego Zoo Alliance and things like that to be able to really work in that realm of using my photographs to help better species. I love that. And I'm That's curious awesome. for you, Pam, are you also trying to do some of that with your own work? Um, I want to get back. Um, I love wildlife and I feel like it's, um, that you spend so much time in. And so um, that's, you know, what I've, what I'm trying to do, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this and um, just a way to, you know, get a message out. Perfect. Well, we uh, we don't often discuss wildlife a lot on this podcast. However, you know, I think there's a ton of overlap um, between the two genres of landscape photography and wildlife photography. I mean, we all have basically the same equipment and stuff like that. Um, so I would love for you each to talk a little bit first about uh, what each of you like about landscape photography versus wildlife photography and why you find yourself going in, went, going in one direction or the other. And if you want to take it, Pam, that's great. Sure. I'm, I'm really torn on this one because I love both. Um, sure. Uh, my parents um, really fostered that love of wildlife. They gave me a picture of a lynx, and I still have it. And I dreamt of seeing one, and I actually got to photograph one in the Yukon a few years ago. And, um, you know, I, I grew up, my first seven years I spent in the Smoky Mountains hiking with my parents, and I saw my first black bear on my dad's shoulders. 
And I just, I loved, you know, being outside, being in nature. And so going to places like Lake Clark and Katmai National Park, I love seeing the bears. I love spending time there. But when I come home to New Mexico, I look outside and I can see the scuffs right now and they're, they're like beautiful. I mean, they just, they draw me outside and I love being by the river and um, just, just the peacefulness of, of a sunset and, and that time on the water. And I love Bosquito Apache. For me, that's like my perfect place. It's such beautiful landscape, beautiful reflections. It's, it's an amazing place. And then wildlife to boot. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I go back and forth. I, I think my favorite wildlife photos have, you know, some landscape element to them. And so that's what I'm, you know, I'm trying to get better in both and kind of, um, you know, do them together. And just to be clear, when you saw that first black bear, you were on your dad's shoulders, not the black bear. <laughs> yes, definitely. I was on my dad's shoulders. And so I, I thought it was a mate trying to protect his family, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, I still still have that memory. Yeah, that's awesome. I, um, not to uh, interject here, but I, I feel the same way as you. I, I love both. I just... Um, I think for me, landscape is just a little bit easier, more predictable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, like wildlife is usually a chance encounter and I love it when it happens. I actually had a couple of moose encounters this, this past fall. One of them was actually pretty scary because I was solo hiking in the middle of nowhere, um, after a snowstorm and I was hiking down this road and I heard this huge crashing behind me and I looked back and this bull moose was... (laughs) had just come out of the forest and wanted to hang out. Actually, I think he was trying to tell me to get the heck out of there because he <laughs> kept making these really strange sounds that I don't think I could ever reproduce. But, you know, that was fun. Um, those are exciting mm-hmm. moments. And I think that's another thing that wildlife can do is they can connect us to the place and to the moment. And so what about for you, Jennifer? Yeah, for me, you know, when I'm planning a photo trip, I'm always focused on what species I'm looking for and the specific areas, but that always takes me to these epic locations. So I can't help myself, but be photographing landscapes while I'm there. And to me, I think it's just really important to be showcasing, you know, the habitats that the animals are living in. So, you know, not just zooming in super close and getting those portraits, but you know, backing up, getting those environmental shots, showing the animals in their landscape. Those are always my favorite pictures as well. And I think that, you know, it's really important to be able to tell that full, you know, the full story, not just about a species, but about their habitat as well. I love landscape photography. Yeah, for sure. That's actually one thing I picked up. Um, I had Clay Bolt on the podcast and, you know, he's all about bees and he talked about that too. It's like, you know, one of the cool things you can do with bees even is showing them in their environment and the types of plants they like to interact with and things like that. So I think it is important to think more about the environmental portrait than just the zoomed in shot of, you know, the macro shot of those bees eyeball or whatever. So yeah, I think that's an important message. Definitely. Awesome. Well, so one of the the most important aspects of wildlife photography, in my opinion, is the ethical side of things. And I think you guys would both agree with that since you're here talking about it tonight. Um, And I've heard some absolute horror stories about some world-famous wildlife photographers that, um, you know, sell huge books and have, 
massive name recognition and they they're doing things to get their images um and it seems to me like the public is completely oblivious um to the negative side of this particular art form so why do each of you feel strongly about ethics in regards to wildlife photography i think for me it's just my love of wildlife and i think that um I've also had a very strong foundation and workshops from. My very first workshop instructor was Ed McCarrow of In Light of Nature, and he lives, breathes, sleeps, ethics, teaches it. And so I think that really helped foster, um, you know, that or ingrained that message in, in my mind to, to, you know, really think about, you know, what you're shooting, how you're shooting. Um, you know, the, the second, you know, as far as the landscape aspect was Wayne Suggs of Mute. He loves the land. He shoots. He, you know, he preaches about protecting it. And, you know, he's such a good mentor, role model. And I, I think, you know, I think everyone should take, you know, a class from, from someone like Ed or Wayne and, and really think about those things, you know, when you're out, you know, out shooting yeah for me the whole reason that i'm out there with my camera is to get people to care about these wild places and the, the animals that inhabit those places and if my actions are causing harm to those species just another obstacle that those animals are having to overcome to survive so i too have heard just absolute horror stories and being in some of the positions that i i have with with Nampa and Nature First, I, I get firsthand encounters of people telling me, oh, this happened or this person did this thing. And, um, you know, it's just really unfortunate that people feel like they, they need to do that. And um, I really, truly like to give people the benefit of the doubt and just hope that they don't know that they're doing harm or they don't realize it. And so I've, you know, I've dedicated a lot of my work to creating resources to help people better understand the impacts of those photos. So, um, you know, anything that people can do to share that message on why we need to be very careful of not to impact that behavior, you know, is just another step in the right direction. Yeah, and it's, it's a hard topic, right? Because ethics isn't sexy, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know if you've watched the TV show, The Good Place, um, but they're basically these people have died and they've gone to heaven supposedly and one of the characters is like an ethics professor and all it, the running joke is like that he's the most boring guy ever and <laughs> so you know it's like it's not like a very desirable topic for people to engage with and I think oftentimes it also gets a bad name because it can come off as kind of preachy and like oh you're just telling me what to do and I'm not going to listen to that so how do we bridge that divide to make ethics something that isn't thought of in those negative connotations yeah i mean it's it's definitely i've been on several podcasts and been interviewed about this topic a lot and it's always the first thing that the interviewer says oh i know this is such a you know tough topic but it's always so and i think we need to move past the fact that you know it isn't sexy or it isn't fun and and find ways to make it fun, you know, find ways that we can creatively start taking pictures that are, you know, bridging those gaps and pushing the limits without harming wildlife. And if we can make that a challenge, um, whether that is photo contests awarding photographers for, you know, divulging 
how they were able to capture the image without impacting wildlife, those kind of things, then we're making it just another element that people are striving for, not just trying to get more Instagram followers or win contests. Because ultimately that's, to, at least to me, that's not my goal. I don't, I don't care if I win contests or have, you know, a million followers as long as, you know, the subjects that I'm photographing are, you know, thriving in their, in their habitat. So I think we just really need to keep the conversation going. And I've been really happy to see so many people excited about including these in their, whether they're conferences or podcasts or, you know, magazine articles. And I'm seeing that more and more. And I think that's, you know, it's baby steps, but it's a step in the right direction. What about for you, Pam? Well, and I, I think we can all agree, like when we see somebody with a cell phone, you know, going up, you know, to a, a bison or elk, um, that that's, you know, not the, not the best thing. And I think there was just a video that came out with a, um, a bull elk going after a guy with a cell phone who got too close. But, you know, maybe people just don't think about when, when they're, they're out photographing or after they've taken the photo. And I think those are the things that, you know, it, maybe it's not um, the most exciting, but it's so important. And these these kind of conversations can have a real impact on, um, you know, a, an animal's future, their their habitat. And so, um, I don't know. For me, I you know, when you were asking, you know, what would you like to talk about, what topics, I thought, well, you know, it would be fun to talk about bears for an hour. I can talk about bears till the cows come home. But does it make a difference? And, um, you know, this, I thought, was more meaningful. Yeah, I super appreciate that. It's a hard one, I feel like, because I think when people hear, oh, you don't hurt the animals, like they assume we're saying things like, you know, don't get out a gun and shoot them. Or, <laughs> you know, I think the I think part of the problem is that there's so much nuance to what we're discussing and mm-hmm. um, the you know, unless you're super into wildlife photography, you might not have a very good grasp of what some of these ethical issues are. And we haven't really even started touching on many of them yet, but I would love for you each to maybe share kind of like, what is your number one rule for how you engage with wildlife as a photographer? Well, well, my number one rule, you know, motto, mantra is do no harm. And I know that's like all encompassing, but it just helps me think about it from the moment I pick up a camera till I post an image. You know, every single step, I want to make sure that, that, you know, nothing I do has. And I learned a valuable lesson with my first time at Katmai National Park I, at Brooks. I was on one of the platforms and one of the guys said that a uh, mother bear and a cub were coming. Um, coming close to the platform and I got super excited. I hadn't photographed a bear cub yet. And so I, I got my camera. I went to the railing. The mother bear was just going under the platform and the baby bear was coming. And I, I, I got my camera up. I looked through the viewfinder, hit focus and I saw a very scared, sad little bear looking back at me. And I just immediately put my camera down. I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And I felt terrible. And my guide, I went back and he said, oh, did you get the shot? And I said, no. And he said, well, why not? You're right there. And I said, I know, but it's not a shot I wanted to take. 
And I think that's important that um, if we insert ourselves into an image, if a bear is scared because of something we do, you know, that shouldn't be an image that, as at least it's not an image I'd be proud of. So that's, um, you know, I've, I've taken, you know, other bear portraits where a bear was scared because of something else. I got um, a photo of a bear in Lake Clark and um, the mother and two siblings came right by us. You know, we stayed out of their way, um, but there was a boar in the meadow and, you know, they were, you know, fighting for their lives, essentially. I mean, because these little bear cubs, um, it's a struggle. You know, the, the boars do kill them. And um, and so anyway, the little bear cub looked up and he looked across the meadow to see if the boar was still there. And I've got a, you know, a photo of him and I've got a great story, but he wasn't scared because of me. It was a different, it, um, you know, it was a different situation and a, and a great outcome. The boar left and, you know, the little bear lived to see another day. And I think these stories are important because I don't think people understand, you know, it, it was, it was something I didn't understand that a, a mother bear would want to bring a bear cub close to me because she felt safer around a photographer or people than she would another bear. And so that's just something that, you know, those those stories I think are important. Well, and so often I feel like the images that are put online and things like that, there's rarely kind of context or story around what was actually occurring when the capture was created. And, and I think it's important for photographers to talk about those. I feel like maybe... You know, maybe they made a mistake. I think it's so okay to own up to like too close or, you know, like we do have an impact. And I can hear, I can hear some of our listeners thinking like, oh, like where do you draw the line, right? But um, I think it's just important to be mindful of these things and be curious mm-hmm. to hear what you have to say about your number one thing, Jennifer. Yeah, well, my, mine is similar, which is just, you know, putting the subjects well-being above myself and my photographs. And if that means that, I'm not getting the photograph because my subject looks uncomfortable, then so be it. And, um, you know, I, I heard, you know, Pam say the, you know, she had that encounter and she realized she was making the bear uncomfortable. And, you know, I think I hasn't had a situation where they realized that they've crossed the line, my, myself right. included. Yeah. I'm not perfect, but I think the difference when it comes to ethics is learning from that and not repeating it versus not caring or not doing the research to know that, you know, a bear that looks frightened or a deer that looks alert or whatever the situation that, you know, if you are making those mistakes, you're owning up to them, you're not repeating them and, you know, you're moving forward. So just always putting those subjects above yourself in your photographs or what. I love that. What are some other ways that we can respect wildlife while still capturing great images of wild animals? Well, I think a long lens helps, um, you know, giving wildlife their space. I I don't think that um, just because you have a a long lens means you're an ethical wildlife photographer. I was in Rocky Mountain National Park, and I don't know if you've ever been there just a couple weeks ago. And I don't know if you've ever been there when the rut was going on, but... To me, it's one of the just most mad, big bull elk um, moving around, trying to keep their harem together while these other bull elk are trying to impose 
and they're they're making this you know curdling you know sound it, it sounds like a trumpet it's, it's hard to explain but um it's incredible and so i i was there a couple weeks ago and i pulled up to this area where there are elk kind of all around i wasn't sure really where i wanted to go and there was a line of photographers with big lenses and tripods set up and i i didn't think i wanted to go over by them because they were they were shooting towards the fence and so i was just kind of trying to decide what to do i walked a little bit away from my car and then all of a sudden a bull elk jumped over the fence and he is pacing back and forth in front of this line of photographers and you can tell he's upset he wants to cross the road and they're just staying put and so i backed up to my car and the bull elk saw me move and he came actually, you know, right in front of me. And I got a great picture of him, you know, without a fence in the back. And he, you know, I, I felt safe. I was right by my car and um, I felt good about good about the experience because I actually, you know, backed off, gave him. And so I, I think that's, you know, I'm sure Jennifer has, you know, much better recommendations, but you know, at least for me, just Joe Schmeld, photographer, I mean, that's just, you know, giving them their space is um, so important. Yeah, I mean, I do agree for sure. You want to give them their space. Um, and it, to me, I think for the most important thing that people need to do is their research. Um, so much, you know, I run into people and it's like they don't even know what they're photographing. They see something, maybe they weren't looking for that animal and they just start photographing it and you know, you need to know if you're photographing an animal, what is it, you know, what are the tell you that you're too close or it's critical life cycles like denning, nesting, mating. You know, if you're standing in between um, a bull moose and, a, you know, and a cow during mating season, you know, you're probably going to get in trouble because I was say, you should be panicking <laughs> good and and i've seen it i've seen people getting charged um from bull moose because they're they're interrupting what he's trying to do and yeah. you know the same things with using you know uh bird calls when birds are nesting i mean it's such a, a horrible thing to do because they're trying so much to feed their young and if they're thinking there's an intruder they might abandon that nest or be just so much on alert that they're not getting food for their young so knowing what you're photographing you know those things that you should be looking for you're you know you're not just sitting outside of a den or you're you know if you're in a boat you're not getting too close to a whale or whatever the situation is you should really know what it is that you're looking at and be able to identify if that animal is trying to tell you you know you're you're do, you're too close or you're interrupting what i'm doing so research first absolutely what are what are some good resources for people to use to do that research? Yeah, I mean, it, again, depending on what they're photographing, there's so many resources out there. Uh, with birds, I mean, Audubon or Cornell has so much um, information on their on the websites. You can look up just about any bird, or even if you don't know what birds that you might encounter, um, you can go onto species lists and different um, national parks, state parks, refuges, they almost always list what kind of, you know, animals are in the park. And so if going into an area, you know, go on that website, look at what's there and, you know, figure out what's what's happening. You know, are birds migrating or are they, 
you know, is this an area where they're nesting? Whatever the situation is, um, you know, doing that research, going in, looking at the websites. Um, and, you know, something as simple as a Google search can get you a lot of information. But just about any animal has an organization that is targeting it. And they always have a wealth of information about those animals. I was surprised. I photographed an owl's nest um, this spring. And it's on a very busy path um, near my home. And I just, I couldn't believe that so many photographers would walk up and and hoot and holler and call, jump up and down, clap, anything just to get the little owlets to look their way. And to me, I just, it was like mortified thinking, you know, these little guys need to hear their parents. And so, you know, I think just, just realizing, you know, seeing the bigger picture is trying to get them to look at your at your camera for a photo. I think part of it is like some of this is like human nature. We don't we always consider ourselves like the number one alpha apex species, right? And we don't realize the impacts that we can have on other wildlife and other creatures just by our mere presence or things that we're doing and, and it can have long lasting effects on on their entire life and their lifespan and the mm-hmm. life cycle. So um, I think to your point, Jennifer, I think education is probably the best cure for this. It's just a matter of trying to get people to thoughtfully engage in that education is, I think, the hard, the most difficult challenge, right? Yeah. Well, and anytime we can be um, donating or helping out in, you know, those areas where they are seeing a lot of traffic to get docents or rangers or people who are help, helping educate, um, because people want to learn, you know, they want to know what they're looking at. And, you know, I've had, I was in La Jolla um, in California, and this is an area that has a lot of uh, newborn marine mammals. So harbor seal pups and California sea lions. And the area is closed off. There's the signage everywhere saying, you know, do not enter. But you can see these people were, they were making barking sea lion noises at the harbor seals and you know i asked them to stop and they said well why and i'm like well that's considered a predator to them so you're essentially letting them think that there is something to be alarmed at and they're like i didn't know that i didn't even know that that's not what these animals were or what they sounded like and you know not everybody is doing things because they're jerks sometimes they just don't know any better and if we can invest in people who are providing that education no, I think that we're, you know, just helping spread that message. Yeah, well said. Well, Pam, we're going to shift to probably one of your favorite topics, which is bears. <laughs> and I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about bear jams and what those are and how does that relate to bear photography? I think I actually met Jennifer in a bear jam. And so... <laughs> um, great. Yes. <laughs> you know... I think they get a bad rap, but there's, there's, you know, there's actually some, you know, some good things that go along with bear jams. And so, but they, they happen in national parks and somebody spots a bear and all of a sudden it's chaos. You know, everybody's trying to stop going different directions and, um, you know, get out of their car as fast as they can. Um, but it, you know, it's actually, you know, it's, um, you know, the, the risk of getting attacked by bears, is real, but in a group, it's, you know, almost non-existent. I mean, it, I guess there are some, but very low. And so it's safer 
and it's a safe way to photograph. And um, I don't, you know, it's just, um, I've seen some good things come out of Bear Jams. I've seen people take time to actually, you know, tell families that may not know about the bear, all about them, share stories and photos that they've gotten. And, you know, I've learned um, about equipment and cameras from at Bear Jams, and I've met other photographers. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those where there's, you know, the good and bad. Um, you know, I've also seen bears hazed because um, crowds got out of control, and that, that's always sad. And I've, I've seen people fight over, you know, these arbitrary spots that right <laughs> and so um but you know but m- most people just you know are there because they absolutely love wildlife and and um you know want to have that moment i did not know that's what those are called i actually encountered one of those on by chance in yellowstone a couple of years ago and i about lost my mind because i was so frustrated <laughs> because i was trying to get my wife and i were trying to drive to Bozeman, I think it was, and we were just trying to get through. Through. Mm-hmm. And traffic was completely jammed in both directions, and no one could get through. And it's because it makes more. But it was not a very good place on the road. Like, there was no places to pull over. So they literally were just blocking traffic for miles. I don't think that's very cool. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. And, you know, the, the poor rangers have a lot on their hands trying to to manage people and traffic. And it's probably the, the traffic's probably the most dangerous thing about a bear jam. Yeah, um, agreed. You know, there's, there's good things and bad things. And um, I think the number one thing is just that people are pulling over safely. Um, and that means that they're also providing a gap for the bear to be able to cross the road. And I think so many people forget about that, that we shouldn't be. I mean, if the bear, and there's a lot of reasons. It could be that it's purposely trying to stay near people so that their cubs are safer from the males in the woods. It could be because she's trying to cross the road and there's food or water on the other side. Whatever the reason, you still need a gap. Um, and people feel like they're in national park, almost like they're above the law like oh i paid admission to get in here so i can block the road (laughs) whatever that is and not the case you know you do have to all four tires off the side of the road that you're in a safe spot and um and i think one of the things that can be frustrating is when the bears are not in national parks when they wandered out and people are used to seeing them in national parks and they start doing that exact behavior in unsafe places that are not monitored and there's a, a very well-known bear that many call Felicia um, that is just outside Grand Teton National Park. Who She was on a highway, and she loved being near that highway. And the photographers were causing a traffic jam, and highway patrol threatened to kill her just to get people to stop, you know, perking on the highway. Wow. And luckily enough people, you know, they petitioned against it, and they said they weren't going to photograph her anymore they'd leave her alone so that this wouldn't be an issue anymore and luckily she's still around but people have to be smart and they have to keep following the rules whether you know they see a bearer or whatever is on the road yeah it's interesting uh this past fall i had three moose encounters um two of them or actually one of them was on the side of the road 
and it was like off this huge pull off so like you could park your car and it was very easy to like it was and it was pretty far away but it was still fun to watch and stuff and then another one was the one I told you at the beginning of the podcast and then a third one um we were on this really narrow mountain road um it's called Ohio Pass and all of these people were pulled off on the side of the road which is a, like a one track road anyway and I, I had no interest in getting out of my car. I'm like, you, you guys, this is, like, not safe. Like, and actually, somebody got their car stuck. Like, they had to have be towed out because they didn't, yeah, they parked their car in an unsafe place and high-centered it <laughs> off the side of the road. And, no. yeah, it's, um, I think, I think sometimes it's better to not worry about seeing the wildlife and, photographing the wildlife and maybe think about how you're impacting other people and you know other people's safety and things like that so yeah well and that's the thing with ethics most of the time people are thinking it's just ethics is me telling you what to do and a lot of times it's me keeping you safe from whether it's being attacked by an animal or getting hit by a car or whatever that is so right it's not just about the animal safety it's about people too yeah, 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 yeah. Point. All right. Well, shifting gears a little bit, this is probably one of my hugest pet peeves, and I would love to hear you guys talk a little bit about it. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, live bait uh, to lure wild animals. And I'm curious, kind of, in your opinions, what is the problem with using bait to to make photographs of, of wildlife? Well, I... I've heard, you know, at least the live mice that, that some people use carry diseases. I, I think there's some, you know, back and forth disagreement on that. But um, I, I just, I don't think it's ever good to, you know, sacrifice one animal for another besides your, you know, it's never good to feed wildlife in, you know, in any form. And so, um, I don't know, for my, you know, Jennifer may have more um you know, background in this area, but, you know, as, as far as I, I, I've never, um, been around anyone doing it. And so, um, I don't, um, I just don't think it's ever a good idea to, um, feed wildlife. Well, and I'm sure Jennifer touched on this, but what I've heard the, probably the biggest problem with it is that you're actually changing the animal's behavior and you're habituating them to humans. Mm-hmm. But Jennifer, you can chime in. Yeah. So when it comes to it is just shades of gray. There's almost never a a topic that people can agree is black and white, except for maybe live bait. I think almost any organization has, that is reputable in any case has kind of all come together and say, okay, live bait, it's kind of a no-no. Um, and there's a lot of reasons. It's uh, changing their behavior for sure. It definitely, when it comes to animals like foxes or bears or animals like that, it definitely makes them habituated, which can lead to them getting very close to people and assuming people. And there was even, um, there was a very well-known photographer who was baiting a fox in Grand Teton a couple of years ago. And I met that fox, I photographed that fox, and he was trying to jump in people's cars. I mean, he was he was very comfortable with people and they did eventually um, put him down after that. And, you know, owls is another common thing. And 
like Pam said, I mean, sacrificing the life of a mouse for a photograph is inhumane. And most of the time, people who are are doing that, throwing mice, store-bought mice to owls, are doing it near roads. And almost always, the owl is hit by a car because they start to think, you know, food sources near roads. They see a car. They try to get, you know, they try to get close to those cars and they get hit. So... Um, whether it's, you know, habituation or, you know, aggression, getting hit by cars. There's so many things. Um, like Pam touched on, disease transmission can happen as well. Um, you know, when it comes to non-live bait, that starts to become a little bit more of a gray area. People say, well, you know, bird feeders. I mean, that's a multi-billion dollar industry. And to me, as long as it's not, you know, throwing carn into rafters, as long as you're keeping them clean, you're keeping them away from windows, things like that. You know, I don't have a problem with bird feeders um, for the sake of bird feeders. But if you're feeding grapes to black bears, yeah, absolutely not. You know, there's there's a plethora of, you know, it's a slippery slope. And anytime you're feeding wildlife for photographs, you're altering their behavior and it never ends well for that animal. Something else I want to note, um, I always like to, when this conversation comes up, is that almost every photo contest or reputable photo contest and publication does not allow photographs of animals that have been live baited. So something else to note that is very little benefit to doing it. Yeah, and I think the challenge with that as a competition right. organiz- organizer myself is that it's incredibly difficult to police that, right? It is. I mean, there's some tells, and it's definitely something that I'm um, I'm starting to work on is creating documents for contest judges that to look for. So when you're seeing owls that are baited, it's very it's very obvious. Um, typically, owls that are um, hunting in snow, which is typically when people are doing this, the the rodent is not on the top of the snow. If you're seeing a mouse on the top of the snow and an owl is diving for it, it's baited. I mean, it's pretty obvious. You know, and and I've seen photographs of owls landing on people's cameras and they're like, oh, this magical experience. And it was like, they don't do that. That's normal. You know, these these things are not normal behavior. And maybe you didn't bait it, but somebody before you did, you know, so there's there's always things to tell. You know, this isn't baiting, but this is just photographs of mountain lions and trees you're not getting a natural picture of a mountain lion in a tree. That was because a, a dog chased it up the tree. And that's something else photographers do to get photographs is send out hounds to tree a cougar and then you get photographs. So when contest judges are seeing these things, hopefully they're educated enough to know that there's a reason why these amazing pictures are occurring. Yeah, and it always, not to go off on a tangent, but it, one of my biggest pet peeves is when you see the way that photographers describe a photograph as wildlife or, you know, like, what, look at this amazing wildlife moment I captured. And you're like, that was in a zoo or, you know, like you paid to go like to this raptor event where they have all these raptors and you can photograph the raptors like you're you're photographing captive animals and or you're photographing animals that, you know, you weren't in the wild you know, it's not like you spent seven days trekking into the woods and you happened upon a, a, a grizzly bear. Like, that's not wildlife photography. <laughs> but I was just going to say, 
you know, and what kind of story is that? I mean, for me, so much of photography is the story. And what are you going to say? Well, I was standing in a line with six other photographers and somebody threw a mouse out and I got this great photo. I mean, there's just, there's no story there. There's, and so, I don't know. You go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think it's just disingenuous, Mm -hmm. right? To, to, because they never say that. They're never like, oh, I was on this thing and they, the, the guy threw a mouse out and then I got a cool photo of an owl. It's never like that. It's not. And it does create unrealistic expectations in nature photography. You know, when when you got photo viewers going, well, that fox looks a little unkept. Well, of course he's unkept. He's a wild fox. He wasn't, <laughs> you know, air, you know, hand brushed right before, you know, this is in the game farm. So when they are creating or, you know, well maintained, um, it does create this expectation in wildlife photography that makes it very difficult for people who are doing it ethically. Why do you think some photographers are not forthcoming with their unethical methods in regard to their winning images or highly successful photographs on social media? I don't know. I would say money, attention, you know, maybe impatience with actually taking the time to to get a real photo. Um, Maybe some think they're just really good at editing, that they're you know, they can put a, a rainbow and lightning together and, you know, it it just happened that way. I, I don't know. Um, it It's hard, I think, at that point. And so I don't really, I don't, I don't really know what the, the mindset is. But like the, the, the winning image of the wildlife photographer of the year where that had the anteater, um, you know. Classic. That, that turned out to be what a taxidermy. Um, I, I I don't know Absolute what we would go classic. through someone's mind to to do that. You know, he he swears it's a real image, and you know if you if you look at it just on face value, if you think of it just as art, it is a cool image. But and as you said, disingenuous to call that wildlife photography. I think that entire story is amazing because I. If I'm not mistaken, that anteater was like in a hotel or something like that. <laughs> and he had to go in and like steal it or like borrow it <laughs> and then stage it and then bring it back. <laughs> like uh-huh. the, the story is actually pretty fascinating. You know, the lengths people will go to to for personal gain. It's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, and for me, I mean, truth and captioning, I think, is important to any time you're publishing a picture, whether it's social media, it's in a contest, it's in a publication. And if you're refusing that truth and captioning, it it leads me to wonder why. And whether it's, you know, they are doing something illegal or unethical or they just don't know what they're doing. I don't know. But um, it definitely... Anytime I see a photo that looks too good to be true, I look for that that description. And if it's not there, then I pretty much immediately write it off like this isn't real. Whatever you did, whether this is captive, taxidermied um, or baited. I mean, there was another winning image that got disqualified because they had put dog food out for a bear and got a reflection of this bear in this beautiful habitat. But again, it was manufactured. So if you're manufacturing images, you're... You know, you're losing all credibility. And I think that's why they're doing that. If if they know they're being unethical, if you're you're going out and you're creating an using to say how you did it, 
I think you need to look internally on because you refusing to say how you did it is already answering you know, this, you know the question. Yeah. And those typically, you know, whenever those individuals are, someone asks them a question, usually it's not even a photographer. It's like, oh, how, how did you do this? Or like, and they're usually, they're super defensive and angry. And, you know, that's, for me, that's like a telltale sign that something's not quite right, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. If you're defensive on the simple question, how did you make it? You right. probably were doing it right. Yeah. Um, okay. So what are some tips for things to think about after you've captured the photograph um, and, you know, including like locations or descriptions, things like that? Yeah. Um, so I think the most important thing to think about is um, how much detail do you want to provide and and why? So for the most part, I think there's some key elements you should always be providing when you're publishing a picture, the who, what, where, when, why, right? And so when it comes to locations, that's a tricky su subject. So if it's a rare or delicate subject, like let's say a rhino, divulging the exact location can actually be more harmful than good because poachers actually use that information to hunt them. Um, same thing with going with a very rare bird. Um, those animals get mobbed. And a lot of time they're on private property or somewhere that those people do not want a thousand people showing up and, and because they're just trying to get because they're getting mobbed by photographers. So sharing that location can sometimes be more harmful than good. But providing some sort of location I think is important. So you could say something as simple as, I saw this whooping crane in Texas. I mean, that's pretty vague. You're not going to be divulging any location. We know that they winter in Texas. Yeah. It's not telling anyone anything that they couldn't find out on the internet. Um, that being said, it, you know, we already talked about it. If it is a captive subject, you should be telling this, the photo viewer that it is a captive subject. And there's a lot of reasons why you might be photographing captive subjects. I do for, you know, rehabbed animals. Sure. Um, I, I do it a lot. And I'm very honest in my captions that this is an animal that was, you know, rescued, can't be released in the wild because X, Y, Z, and is serving as an ambassador or whatever the reason is. So um, I think you really should be explaining how you've photographed the picture just to add transparency, to create, um, you know, you don't want people to try to mimic the picture that you, you've taken and not know how you did it. And then they're doing something unethical, like if you had special permission or you with a biologist who's helping you create those images and the photo viewer doesn't understand that and they try to mimic it, um, that might be causing more harm. So explaining that, I think, is an important element. But be careful, when, particularly when it comes to locations, that you're not divulging very sensitive subjects in very specific locations. And, you know, it could be something as simple as waiting a few weeks until um, that subject has moved on and then saying, yeah, I saw it in Yellowstone or I saw it in wherever. Um, and then that animal's probably not in that location anymore. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, my mom is like a really big birder and she belonged to this pretty um, active birding group where she lives. And they use eBird and like they force you to like put in the exact GPS coordinates of the 
where you saw the burn and my mom you know at first she was like okay yeah that's fine and then she started to realize like i'm not gonna do that because that means these people are gonna go to that same spot and a lot of these spots are on close to private property or like it's you know a very small area and you don't or you're gonna get too close to a nest or you know things like that and so she stopped sharing the locations and she actually got kicked out of her group because they they're like you're not sharing your locations with us and and I just think that's incredibly sad that that's you know people are that obsessed with seeing birds or capturing birds that yeah well one of the things that surprised me even after all these years of doing this is I was I was photographing bird in Texas along the Gulf and someone there, I can't remember what the bird was, but there was an extremely rare bird that was down there um, this year. And I had someone come up and ask me if I'd seen it yet, which I didn't. And they said, would you like to join the WhatsApp group? It tells you where the bird is on any given day. And I was like, wow, like, I can't believe that's a thing. Like, I mean, this has gone to a whole new level where people are actually like messaging each other. Okay, oh, yeah. the bird moved here, the birds moved there. And I'm like, I'm not participating in that. That's horrible. So, yeah, I mean, and I and I applaud, you know, anyone who decides to stand up for, you know, wildlife rights and say, you know what, I'm not divulging that information, even if I get kicked out of a group. So, yeah. and I think we just need more people to stand up and say they're not going to do it. Love and I've heard that many hunters use eBird. Um, to to find their locations, and so you know, I, I I'm proud of your mom for for doing that. We had a rare bird in Albuquerque, a purple gallinule that is mainly found in Florida. It's um, very rare for our area, and it was a big deal. And you know, on a birding Facebook page, and there were tons of pictures of it. And I I, I did photograph it, and um. I, I couldn't decide, you know, usually I do wait. I, I think, you know, what Jennifer said, just waiting, giving wildlife time to move on, I think is so important. And this this one particular bird had been posted repeatedly, so I thought it'd be okay to post. And, um, and I, I immediately regretted it. I didn't put a location, but um, somebody else had, had seen, you know, my image and I think a few others. And someone posted and said, I must find this bird today. Where is this bird? And somebody gave him the exact coordinates. And I thought, oh, that's crazy. You know, anyone who said, I need to find this, you know, animal today, that's, that's not a good sign. But they, they gave her exact coordinates. And, you know, long story short, the bird was not there the next day. Now, it was it was running out of water where it was. So, you know, there's there's a chance it could have just, you know, moved on on its own. But what I didn't know was that particular bird is hunted in Texas and Louisiana because you can't hunt it in Florida. And so, you know, I, I just, I felt terrible, you know, and that's the, you know, Jennifer was saying, do your research. But also when you're posting, think about that as well, that, you know, do research on, you know, what impact this, you know, posting this image could have. And I, you know, I wish I could take that back and I can't, but, you know, i I learned my lesson on that one, and I'll be more careful. Um, with, you know, well, it's hard, right? Because I mean, we're humans. We we love to share with others. We love, mm-hmm. you know, we're excited about the subject. You know, we're excited about the photograph we captured, and we want to show the world. Look at this cool bird, right? And mm-hmm. and I think sometimes 
I think really all that's needed is just to slow down right. and think about, okay, if I do this, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like, it doesn't take long to realize, like, oh, someone might see it, and this will happen, and that'll happen. Okay, well, I'm not going to do that. You know right. what I mean? So Yeah. Um, well, and, and to Pan's point, I mean, sometimes you don't even, lo- you know, divulge the location. Sometimes, I mean, I- in a place that I've been a lot of times, I can tell you exactly where an image is taken just by, you know, certain areas of the habitat. So if, even if you're not divulging the location, sometimes it's a little obvious. Be careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard one. And, you know, my my favorite is, like, I will f- photograph a location that's super not known. And I very purposely don't tell anyone where it is. And I post it. And course there's inevitably someone who says where's that yeah they they don't even say oh that's a great picture it's immediately just where's that yeah (laughs) and then and then of course i'll say something like oh you know i don't share locations it's Mm -hmm. in it's in colorado whatever and of course there's that one person that's like oh it's actually this place and here's (laughs) where it is and it's like oh my god blocked like you're done Get out of here. Right. That is yes, like it, my least favorite thing ever. <laughs> if somebody that posts does not divulge a location, don't divulge it for them. They, there's a reason yes. they didn't. Un- and there's like Facebook groups now that they won't even let you post in their group if you don't put the location. Right. It's it's unbelievable. Be like, I don't know, somewhere in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be vague. It's- Northern New Mexico or something. You know, you don't have right. to. North America. Just, if, they, if they're not happy about it, then just post somewhere else or don't post. Yeah, there's, I was in, I'm in this Discord channel with a bunch of landscape photographers, and one of them lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, and he had he posted some photo on Instagram, you know, and didn't geotag or anything. And this big, huge hub, it's like a hub for photos in the Pacific Northwest. And they put on his thing, like, would you mind telling us the location of your image? We love it and we want to share it. And he was like, no, thank you. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't, I did not put the location for a reason. Like, please respect Mm -hmm. that. Right. It's frustrating. I I, I just got back from Iceland a couple weeks ago and I was, um, we were mainly up in the highlands, so it's really remote and hard to get to. But we also went down on the southern coast, and our guide had said, we're going to go to this beach, and it's gotten very Instagram. And we, we got there early. There weren't many people there. And I was focused on, you know, photographing this piece of ice with the waves coming in. And I was just thinking about my settings and all of this and watching the sun. After the sunrise was over, I got all my stuff, and I turned around. And there were people everywhere, you know, laying on the ice, posing around the ice, all these women in red dresses around the ice. And so, you know, it just, it, it really was disheartening. It made me think, you know, what if this happens to some of my favorite, you know, locations in New Mexico that, you know, with, um, with hoodoos and, you know, and I just could picture somebody, you know, in a red dress laying on this hoodoo that's taken millions of years to form and, you know, having it crumble away. And it just, um, and whenever, you know, I, I have a location like this, whether it's a petroglyph or a hoodoo, you know, I uh, will purposely not post a location, but somebody can take your, your post and forward it, and then you have no control over it, and somebody can 
you know, there's always these people to say, oh, this is, you know, and so. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult problem to solve because mm -hmm. there's so much information coming at us, bombarding us. And I think, you know, it's noble of us to want to not share locations, of course, but, you know, for every three of us, there's 50 others who love to share their locations. So it's, it's I don't, I don't know the answer. <laughs> And share it in real time. Um, oh, you know. for sure. And like, hey, I'll meet you there with a six-pack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Pam, I have a question for you. Um, I know that you won uh, in a, a competition. I think it's the Nature Photographer of the Year. Mm -hmm. And um, you also wrote an article f for them. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, I, I didn't write it. Eric Ruderman, um, he's a nature photographer and writer, um, really good photographer from the Netherlands, wrote it. He um, he works with Nature Photographer of the Year just to kind of highlight some of the photographers that have won in their images. And I was um, really appreciative of him doing that. Um, my image was of a coyote in a New Mexico snowstorm and coyotes, you know, at least in my area can get a bad rap. And so, um, it was a way to, you know, in, in my view, kind of give back, um, you know, and, and tell, you know, some of the good things are keystone species. They help the environment. And, um, and whenever I've seen them, they're, they're very calm. You know, I was out walking my dog blue and, you know, he's always, um, he knows when a coyote's around and you know if he wouldn't have alerted me that he was there and I got my dog blue to sit so interesting that you know they they do kind of play off each other and um but you know he he was just trying to pass by us it wasn't you know he wasn't following us or anything so anyway it was a nice opportunity to just share that it, it was a, a special moment for for me yeah, often people win competitions and, you know, it's like, oh, look at me, I won this cool competition. And that's totally reasonable because it doesn't happen very often. But I think it's great that you use that opportunity to kind of showcase why that animal is important and why why you chose to photograph it and why it's special to you and what people can mm -hmm. learn about it. I think that's a great way to treat a, a, a win in a competition. Right. And I... I... I really appreciate the fact that they do people a chance to to give back to those um, areas and, and wildlife that they photograph. So I have to flip the coin a little bit. So, <laughs> so speaking of that same competition, and I think the same year, like last mm -hmm. year, um, I saw the announcements of the winning, I think the, the winning photographer, and one of the images they won with, it was a drone photograph where they were like within a flock of geese, I think. And it was a stunning image, absolutely fantastic image. Mm -hmm. But I was really puzzled by that because I'm a drone operator myself. And like, if I see wildlife, I'm like, nope, I'm out of here. I don't want my drone to be responsible for anything having to do with disturbing wildlife. And so I thought it was super fascinating that that image was allowed to win, especially given the fact that I think in their rules they talk about that the taking of the photograph you can't have disturbed the wildlife. Harassing and I just wildlife. got to thinking mm -hmm. like 
the very fact that your drone is in the air, you're going to be disturbing those birds. And so I thought that was a little bit of a, a conflict. So I'm curious for both of you, uh, would you maybe speak a little bit about how or if at all drones can be used in an ethical fashion in regards to wildlife? Well, I, I, I agree with you. I thought so to be because he's um, well known to them. He's a long, lifelong birder. He's, you know, written multiple books and he had provided information, supplemental information to them um, on, you know, his whole process and the, you know, the way he did the photography where he said, you know, that the geese weren't influenced at all. And so I think, you know, in, in that regard, I know they did look at it closely and I don't know the details, but, um, they did look at it closely. You know, I have seen other drone shots though, where, um, the animals clearly looking at the drone. And I read about a, a study they did in Minnesota on black bears where they, they were studying them anyway, but they decided to go ahead and add in a drone to the equation and see what it would do. And it raised the, um, the heart rate of bears by a considerable amount. And the interesting thing was the bears, you know, looked like they weren't even phased. And so, you know, I think there's a lot to learn in that area. I'm not, I don't have a drone. I'd like to get one just for landscape, but, um, you know, I've seen some beautiful footage of drones over what kind of effect, you know, it has if they if they perceive that or not. So, yeah, I read that. I read about that same study. And I remember there I think it might have been last year, or the year before there was a photo um, or a story about uh, these bears. They were going over this ridge in the snow and the cubs fell down in the snow and they captured the photo with the drone. I'm like, the only reason they did that is because of your drone. Like, right. <laughs> come, come on, man. You know, exactly. Like, get a clue. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think, Jennifer. Yeah, I, I looked at that image very closely and I read the caption and um, it is a beautiful image. I mean, I'm not going to deny that that's a beautiful Ooh. image. Um, but yeah, I think anytime you're that close to wildlife and the I don't know of a drone, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know close enough that he would be far enough away to not be impacting the behavior of those geese. And when you are doing something like that to birds, they are, I've seen birds attack drones. I've heard of horror stories of drones crashing into nest colonies and an entire colonies of birds abandoning that happened in California two years ago. Um, and there's just there's so many negatives with photographing birds with drones. So it does shock me that that one and I would be, you know, I would definitely love to know the opinion of the judges on why they didn't think that was impacting behavior. Um, but, you know, they risk those those geese moving away from that area. And, you know, that could impact their survival rate if they've already stopped over spot. Um, on the flip side, I have seen people use drones for conservation photography and i think it's a powerful tool um and i think if you're using them correctly that drones are a great way of being able to capture images to tell really important stories from angles that we can never get otherwise but they do have to be and it's still in its infancy we're still learning we're still 
trying to figure out what those rules and regulations are and, you know, whether they're, you know, photographing those bears, they definitely that that drone was impacting those bears. You can see the bear at one point swiping at the drone. I mean, it was very obvious that the the drone was what caused the bears to run. Um, but yeah, I mean, as long as people are staying within a very reasonable distance, and I think that distance is still up to being studied. What is that distance on where we're not impacting their behavior? And, you know, it wasn't drones, but same thing. I, I read a study about tigers and tigers in national parks. They, they seem unfazed too. I've been in national parks in India and the tiger looks like he couldn't care less. But they actually took fecal samples and there was a stress hormone that was found in tigers that were found where tourists were. And that actually can impact um, their fertility rate. So these are things that we don't necessarily know enough um, when it comes to drones on what is raising their heart rate, what is raising their blood pressure, and is that impacting them? Are they moving away from areas they need to be? And I honestly would love to see more people doing studies on the impacts of drones. Yeah, I know the Mavic 3 Pro has a zoom on it, and they just released a firmware update where you can shoot that in RAW now, and it's actually pretty clean. So, I mean, you can be like a quarter mile away with a, it's like the equivalent of like a, I want to say like an 80 millimeter zoom or 100 millimeter zoom or something like that, or maybe even more, but it's pretty good. But still, you're pretty close still. Yeah, especially when the birds were in flight like that. You know, if all the birds had been on the ground, you know, that might have indicated to me that they weren't being impacted. But if, you know, you understand geese behavior when they see a predator in the air, they take off in a flock like that. And to me, that's what's happening. They saw the drone as a predator and they took off. So right. to me, that's not 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 impacting their behavior, you know, that causing yeah. them to do something for. Yeah. And I think even if they determine somehow through his explanation or whatever, that it wasn't impactful. I think the bigger question is, you know, whenever you have a photograph win a competition or photographs winning in a competition, people are going to try to replicate that, right? I mean, that's exactly what happens all the time. I mean, yep. you look at Alex Noriega's photographs from 2015 where he won, like, uh, Epson and International Photog- Landscape Photographer of the Year. Those locations have been destroyed because of not Alex's fault, but mm-hmm. winning the competition, people have gone to those places to replicate those photos now, and they weren't really on the map yet. Um, so I think that's the bigger concern from a competition running perspective is if you're going to award a, a photograph, you got to know that people are going to try to emulate that that image. Yep. So, And they're probably not going to try to do it in an ethical way like this guy is probably trained to do. So right, that's yeah. the other thing to think they about. They don't have the experience to know how to do it well. Right. No, there's there's definitely room for improvement in competition space. Absolutely. <laughs> when it comes to this issue. And I know my friend uh, Tim Parkin is a judge for, or helps judge the landscape photographer of the year. And it's a huge part of what they look at is ethics and things like that. So, but I don't, it didn't always used to be that way. So, yeah. I, I I see it moving. The bar is moving. It's just moving slowly, like everything. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, well, wrapping things up, uh, would love 
for each of you to, to give us one recommendation on someone you think we should have on the podcast or that our listeners should learn more about. And Jennifer, why don't you go first? Yeah. So my recommendation is Elise Bender. She's a Texas-based photographer. She's also an ambassador for Nature First, and I've had the pleasure of photographing with her. She's very ethical. She's very funny. Uh, she's such a great personality, and she cares deeply for her subject. She um, she photographs a lot of different things, but um, cranes is a really big um, subject for her, both in Japan, where she lived, and here in Texas with the whooping cranes. So that's my recommendation, Elise Bender. Or some people know her just as Bender. Yes, that's how I know her, Bender. Yeah. What about for you, Pam? Um, I would like to recommend Betsy Bosford, Point of Light Photo. Um, she's an amazing photographer from Colorado. And besides, she's a, a wonderful person. I've photographed with her as well. And she donates part of her sales to feeding homeless people and rescuing abused animals. So I, I just think it's great that that she uses her forum to give back. And um, I think she wouldn't be a great addition to your to your show. Thank you. I really appreciate those recommendations. And I know Betsy as well. So I think those are two top-notch uh, suggestions. Well, this has been amazing, Pam and Jennifer. I appreciate your honesty and your candor. I know these are not easy topics to discuss, but I feel like we did an okay job. <laughs> I agree. Well, thank you to both Pam and Jennifer for the great conversation this week and for sharing your wisdom with us. If we can reach just a few people with this message, I think it will help quite a bit. So thank you both for sharing your time with the world. As always, I'd love to hear back from you about anything you gained from listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or by sharing the episode on your social media platform, of choice. I appreciate you a lot. Of course, the ultimate way to support the show is on Patreon, a platform we use to keep the show going. A small monthly or annual contribution goes a long way. Thanks to those of you who have already supported the show, including our newest patrons, Cody Schultz, James Lane, Marlon Mills, and a generous soul named Tyler. Thank you all very much. You can find a link in the show notes to get started. Coming up on the show, we have Nick Becker, a really thoughtful photographer based in St. Louis, Missouri. We also have Matt Palmer, one of my favorite Aussie photographers. And I've also got a few amazing episodes coming that I think will really impress you, so keep tuning in. Thanks for your support. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week. <laughs>